Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is Father Keith Winton, the rector at St. Andrew's Episcopal Church in Omaha. Ordained to the priesthood in his late 50s, Father Keith shares with us his journey in life from the inklings of faith in his childhood in rural Indiana, through his study of mathematics and theology at Wabash College, into his career as a software engineer, to his recent ordination. Luckily, you know, both my wife and, and my children had known all along that this was something that I thought that I would be doing, so it's not something that I sprung on them all of a sudden. And jokingly, my, my wife says when people ask her about it that uh, she's just really happy because I picked ordination and becoming a priest as my midlife crisis rather than running off with someone else and buying a red sports car. Father Keith Winton is rector at St. Andrew's Episcopal Church in Omaha. Before his ordination to the priesthood in 2019, Father Keith was a software developer. He and his wife Lisa, who works in the nonprofit sector, have three children. The youngest is a junior at Omaha Central High School. In his spare time, Father Keith is a musician and a cook. Father Keith Winton, welcome to Lives. Thank you very much, Stuart. So I wanted, uh, before we got too far in our conversation, just to get a sense of where you're at now. And I wanted to ask, what is your role as rector at St. Andrews? The rector in an Episcopal church is the, the head priest at a church. So the person who is ultimately uh, responsible for uh, for everything, the person for whom the buck stops here, essentially. Uh, I um, am responsible for all of the leading all the worship um, or organizing the worship that I'm not leading responsible for the pastoral care, uh, you know, hospital visits, that sort of thing, uh, responsible for the uh, all the education, both for adults and children, that happens, uh, just the, uh, the person in charge. I don't know this. I wonder if the role is not just tending towards the spiritual needs of your staff and your congregation, but how much of it is also an administrative role or a CEO role, as it were? Uh, that, that is also a significant part of it. So everything from managing the budgets, the expenses, the, uh, the income, to um, uh, running the computer systems, uh, to, to uh, fixing most things that break. But I have a lot of help from many folks. So luckily, because I'm not so handy uh, in, in, uh, in fixing things. But. What I know of St. Andrews is that it is a rather beautiful church, but I don't know much about its history or its place, as it were, within the Episcopal family. And I wonder if you would provide just some background or context to, to that. Sure. St. Andrews, like most of the churches, Episcopal churches especially, uh, began life uh, more towards downtown and then except for the uh, the cathedral which is still still downtown most of them migrated west as the population moved west we were at 84th and pacific um so it was in the 50s 60s uh, when uh when that particular building was uh the the, the main church was built um it was um decades before that when a smaller church was in that place uh, but they've expanded to the beautiful building that you know now uh, in the 50s and 60s I think many people in Omaha will know it as that church that sits on the corner at around 84th and Pacific. But in particular, there is that interesting statue 
uh, outside on the Pacific side. Right. Uh, one of one of our members, uh, Phil Pierce, uh, for uh, his entire adult life was the uh, one of the arborists. I think the chief arborist for the city of Omaha. Uh, and uh, he, in his spare time, he tends to our trees now that he's retired. And uh, when any of them uh, need to be uh, removed, uh, if if possible, he he carves a statue out of them, out of the stump that's left. So we have an angel on one side, on the Pacific Street side, and we have a, a cross and uh, uh, and a, a thistle. Uh, St. Andrew uh, was, is the patron saint of Scotland, and so a, th- a thistle for, the, for, for our Scottish heritage on the 84th Street side. I'm glad you mentioned that connection with St. Andrew and uh, him being the patron saint of Scotland. What is the story of St. Andrew and how does that connect specifically to your church and congregation? Sure. Uh, legend has it that St. Andrew's bones very early on were carried uh, to, uh, to a monastery around Fife in Scotland. Uh, and so he became the patron saint of Scotland. The, um, after the American Revolution, uh, in order to become a priest in the Episcopal Church, in the Anglican Church, we're, we're a branch of the larger worldwide Anglican Church, in order to become a priest, you must be ordained by a bishop. And in order to become a bishop, you must be ordained by three other bishops. So uh, after the Revolutionary War, there were no bishops here. Um, the Anglican ordination vows required you to uh, to swear allegiance to the king or, or, the, or the queen. And so uh, that was not possible after the revolution, and there were no there were no bishops here. They all went back to England. So, a, a, as the church needed to grow here, uh, the they, the priests were looking for a way to be ordained as a bishop, and it was Scottish bishops who actually ordained the first American bishop. And uh, and from then on, we have uh, close ties with not just our our mother church, the Church of England, but also the 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 Anglican Church in Scotland. Mm. The the uh, the flag for the Episcopal Church overall has the emblem of uh, Saint Andrew on it uh, to to acknowledge that heritage. You've had an interesting journey to this point, so I want to jump back a little bit and ask you: How did faith show up in your childhood? I grew up in Indiana in um, in a relatively rural Indiana at that time. It's since become uh, you know suburban sprawl like like most places uh, near big cities have. And I grew up in a in a, a Baptist church, and uh, was was active as very active as a youth there, um, and uh, really loved it. But it just wasn't quite the right place for me. And when I went to college. Um, I discovered the Episcopal Church. There were no Episcopal churches near where I grew up, and, and discovered it, and uh, just instantly knew that it was it was the spiritual home for me. Um, and uh, you know, from my Baptist days uh, as a youth, I had I'd always uh, you know felt a strong connection with with the Christian faith, uh, and thought I might end up you know in some sort of ordained ministry. And uh, in college, I I uh, majored both in in mathematics and theology. And um, the timing for me personally was not right. I, uh, to be honest, I, I knew I would, if I went straight into ordained ministry or straight to seminary and then ministry from college, I would have, I would have destroyed my own life and probably the lives of countless others. I needed, uh, I needed to, to grow up quite a lot. So uh, eventually, after several years, uh, I, uh, as they say, I, I couldn't say no any longer. Uh, and I, I went to seminary, and, and here I am. How did faith practice 
sort of manifest itself in your um, in your family context? Were other members of your family particularly religious? Was anybody else, uh, for example, uh, active in church in a lay or ordained capacity? Um, what were the practices of faith in your family? Well, it was a time and place, uh, and uh, and still is. Um still is the kind of place where uh, you know the default the default way of living is to attend a, a, a Protestant church of some sort so everyone in my family was uh, was active as a layperson uh, extended family in in churches in that in that area no one um, no one in any of my extended family had uh, had ever been ordained what else was your childhood like you know what stands out you talk about this sort of rural context in Indiana and, and you know, suburban sprawl has taken over perhaps in more recent times, but what stands out from your childhood? One of the key things uh, that still impacts me to this day is that I, I was lucky enough to, to grow up um, on the land my family had got with the Homestead Act. Uh, we have the original deed signed by President Andrew Jackson at the time. Uh, but I grew up um, with much, uh, much extended family around. In fact, I grew up uh, literally right next door to uh, to my grandparents, and so they had a huge impact. I mean, grandparents are always a source of unconditional love, and uh, and uh, you know, and education, if you will. Uh, but uh, but but growing up um, on that farmland right next to them was uh, was just really a, a a blessing that has shaped me quite a lot. I'm trying to paint this picture in my head of this landscape. I'm curious the degree to which the natural world around you and, and these experiences and relationships, I don't know, maybe influenced or informed your sense of something bigger than yourself, spiritual or otherwise? I think that's a, that's a really good question, a really good point, uh, because when you are, when, you're, when your livelihood and, and your days um, and, you know, and, and nights sometimes are really uh, intertwined with the natural world around you, um, you, you gain a sense of of awe, I think, for the things that you are not in control of, but things that you are tasked with stewarding, um, and uh, you, you gain a, a, a sense of appreciation for the scope and the scale of the world around you that you might not otherwise get, um, and you get a, a, a keen sense of, of our dependence on on the world around us that sometimes it's it's easy to lose sight of in, in today's supermarket-driven world. Does that feel familiar? Now that you're in Omaha, Nebraska, now of course Omaha is a, the largest city in the state as such, but nonetheless it's very much a, a rural state. I, I wonder how this feels in terms of a kinship with your experiences when you were younger. Yes, definitely. The, you know the the ethos, uh, both the Midwestern ethos and then sort of the dependence on the land and the and the products of the land, um, is very similar uh, in 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 Indiana and here in Nebraska. So it's um, it's been a very easy place to move to. So before we actually get to moving to Nebraska and continuing your story there, you went and studied at Wabash College in Indiana, and you studied mathematics and theology. I get a sense of why theology, but why mathematics? Both of those, um, if you think about it, are, are explorations of the mind. Uh, they both involve you know, rigorous thinking. They both involve if you will, you know, theoretical kinds of thinking, philosophical kinds of thinking. Um, so uh, throughout history, actually, many great mathematicians were also theologians and, and vice versa. 
Nonetheless, I don't know how many people in a modern time. <laughs> I'm tracking with you in the in in terms of uh, those medieval scholars who were both uh, pursuing uh, spiritual and um, scientific based inquiry. Not necessarily a contemporary expression of that, I don't think. So I'm still noodling on this idea of um, you know mathematics as a, a subject matter to explore in conjunction with theology. Well, my branches of mathematics that I've that I focused on were uh, were perhaps the um, you, you might call them the the least definitive uh, abstract mathematics, number theory, the kinds of things that um, that still have uh, have some of the greatest um, unsolved problems that we're seeking. In fact, there you may have seen in the paper just recently three or four things. Uh, I've seen them on my social media feeds, three or four uh, things that have been uh, resolved or nearly resolved pointing towards answering some of the great uh, unexplained problems of mathematics. So, you know, I, I think that's quite a lot like exploring uh, things that may not have concrete answers. It, let, let, me, let me perhaps um, say that completely differently. Especially since the Enlightenment, I think we've, we've gotten confused about different kinds of knowledge. And we think that, that the only kind of knowledge there is is 1 plus 1 equals 2. Uh, and, and, and even the great mathematicians actually, uh, you know, uh, uh, Gödel and, and, and others have, uh, have sort of proven that, that th this sounds counterintuitive, but they have proven that there, there are some through tr true things you can't prove. In, in, in any kind of a, a mathematical system, there must be things that are true that you could never, by definition, be able to prove. Um, so there's mystery hidden even inside our mathematics. We just, uh, we, we just have lost sight of it because it's so good at solving real-world problems. Uh, and I think, uh, you know, being open to the possibilities of, of mystery and exploration and... Um, and uh, you know the world of the mind is, is is and the way that it touches us concretely. Uh, it's not just the world of the mind. It's it's the world of interaction with, uh, you know, with with all of life. Uh, that's that's the tie-in. I think. I wonder if you saw mathematics and theology when you're in college with that connection, and if you've held that view uh, to today. I think the answer to to both those questions. Uh, simply is yes but um, uh, to to uh, to expand on that um, it, it seems to me that the things that are most important to all of us in life are those things that are for, for lack you use the word for lack of a better word are, that are somewhat mysterious I mean the things that drive us the, the passions that drive us uh, both good and bad the pain that we feel and that we carry with us uh, you know throughout our lives and sometimes uh, becomes difficult difficult to overcome uh, is is uh, you know a, a mysterious, not a logical thing necessarily, and and the loves that we feel, uh, the passions that we have, um, all all of those things uh, that that really drive us, that really define what it means to be human, uh, spring from uh, some deep well of ineffability. I think you left college, and instead you pursued a career, a secular career outside of the church. I have read this quote of yours when you said that I wasn't mature enough, I wasn't ready, I had a lot of self-awareness and growing up to do. And you've begun to touch on this, but could you talk a little bit more about what what was happening for you at that time that you felt held you back from pursuing the church and instead took you in a different direction? 
Well, I, I think most of us have those places in our lives uh, where we know there are rough edges, if you will. I'm going to answer the question sort of from from the back end of the, the, the story. One of the things that's required uh, to become ordained in the Episcopal Church is that you take some training called clinical pastoral education, uh, which is um, many hundreds of hours of field work in a hospital kind of setting, and also many hundreds of hours in a, in a, in a group uh, discussion kind of setting. And most people, you know, upon hearing that, think that the uh, the point of it is to to practice how to be with people in a hospital and and people who are ill or people who are who might be dying. Uh, and uh, in some sense, that's not the real purpose. The real purpose of it is uh, is in those group sessions, which are really group therapy sessions in, in the end. In those group sessions, to explore what it is that you were bringing to a situation when you were in the hospital that really didn't belong there. So in other words, um, one, of the, uh, one of the standard kind of sayings in, in, in clinical pastoral education is that when you, when you walk into a room, it, it is not a random um, old person lying in the bed, it's your grandmother. Or you, know, you will bring in baggage that is not helpful to the person you need to be helping. So. Um, so going to, uh, to clinical pastoral education gave me the, the, the words to articulate what I felt many years earlier, knowing that, uh, that I had, I need to be able to understand my own, my own baggage, if you will, uh, and, and be able to recognize when it's welling up inside me so that I could be able to effectively uh, be a pastor to others. Your response is making me wonder to what degree is empathy a benefit to your profession and to what degree is that actually a hindrance maybe a helpful way to to explore that is to try and suss out the, the distinctions that might be there between sympathy and empathy um, I think uh, sympathy um, it typically Im implies some sort of um, some sort of distance or and or some sort of power differential so you know i can feel sorry for someone and really not care about helping them i'm just i'm sorry for them um, on the other hand empathy um empathy empathy another word for empathy i think is compassion and and the latin word latin roots of compassion mean to suffer with so having empathy means that you you not only um sort of uh you're not only you are not only aware of someone else's pain, uh, but you are standing beside them, suffering with them. So, uh, being empathetic to those to whom you're giving care is really important. It's 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 absolutely a requirement uh, because you you your key role is to stand beside them, to to walk the path with them. You can't walk it for them. That's where I think empathy can can turn into. Um, something else i'm not sure what that something else would be called necessarily but uh but if if you think that you can solve the problem for someone or or um uh or, or you know sort of walk the path for them that they're on uh you, you certainly can't and uh and then you can uh you can easily fall into um into the trap of of uh, sort of codependency and becoming too entangled but but empathy itself uh sort of a correct kind of empathy is absolutely a a requirement for pastoral care. What was that point when you made the choice that you did want to become an ordained priest? Well, the calling, as I alluded to earlier, had, had already been there. Uh, 
uh, what, what eventually happened was um, I, I reached a point where I could no longer say no to the calling. Um, and, and I think, you know, many people who, um, who come to ordained ministry uh, sort of articulate that same thing where um, y- you, may, you may be trying to push it away. You may be trying to hold it at arm's length and, and uh, eventually, uh, eventually just it forces itself upon you and you can't say no anymore. It, it uh, takes over, takes over your, every aspect of your being. Um, and that's 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 the point that I reached. Um, it was uh, just something that um, uh, that that I had to do. Interestingly, though, for many of us, I think reaching a point in our lives where we're perhaps in our late forties, fifties, the decision to change career in such a remarkable way is not easy. And at this point in life, you're not doing this alone. You aren't yielding to this call. You aren't surrendering to it, absent the fact that you've built a life. And I'm curious, therefore, how your family responded to you having this urge to surrender to the calling. Well, that's a very insightful question because you're, uh, you're very correct. It wasn't just my decision. It was a decision that we all made and we were all involved in. Um, luckily, you know, both my wife and and uh, and and my children um, had known all along that this was something that I thought that I would be doing. So it's not something that I sprung on them all of a sudden. And uh, and jokingly, my my wife says when people ask her about it that uh, she's just really happy because uh, I, I picked ordination and becoming a priest as my midlife crisis rather than running off with someone else and buying a red sports car. So the most difficult thing for them. Um, was I was working full time at the same time I was going to seminary full time, so uh, it was uh, it was three years of uh, about four four and a half hours of sleep a night every night while I while I did that. So they uh, they carried a lot of the load, uh, you know, around the house and a lot of the emotional load for the family while I was doing that. What was that journey from making the decision to go to seminary and? to this point where you are now rector at St. Andrews? In the Episcopal Church, um, it's a pretty, um, I don't want to say complicated journey, but it's a, it's a, an arduous journey uh, for, for, for a good reason. Uh, they, you know, the, their, their purpose is to make sure that if you, earlier, the first thing you asked me was, what does a rector do? And, the, and my answer was, a rector kind of does everything. Uh, and so, uh, you know, the church wants to make sure that um, that if the people they put in that position are going to be well trained and uh, and stable and all those kinds of things that you would want in in a priest running running a parish church, so um, there are uh, there are uh, many months uh, a year or two of uh, sort of discernment at your local church level that you go through, and then the local church gives you sort of the, the permission to take the next step. And then you do the same thing at the uh, the, the governing uh, organization is called the diocese uh, in the Episcopal Church. So you do the same thing for another year or two. Uh, you have to, you sit before, run the gauntlet before many committees. Um, uh, and then after, you know, three or four years, uh, you, you might get the go ahead to go to seminary. And then uh then whilst you're in seminary, you continue some of those checkpoints. And then at the end of seminary, um, there's um, sort of like, you know, the, the, in the Harry Potter movies, they have to take the owls 
the ordinary wizarding level tests to see if you pass or not. It's the same sort of thing in the Episcopal Church. Uh, we have the general ordination exam, and it's you know it's it's three days solid of uh, of written exams uh, to to see if you uh, from a from a technical and knowledge uh, perspective if you learned what you should have. So you have to you have to pass those. And then there are still um, a couple of more rounds of meeting with, uh, you know, with uh, governing bodies and committees. And then you can be ordained as a deacon, a transitional deacon. We have permanent deacons and also transitional deacons. So then you can be ordained as a deacon, which uh, is, is at least a six-month period uh, when you're working in a church, but, um, uh, but sort of uh, ha- having a different role. Uh, and then one more uh, sort of round of of, uh, of approvals, and then uh, you you can be ordained as a priest. So it's about a ten year journey. Well, that journey landed you at St Andrews around 2019. Um, I was first an assistant priest at All Saints uh, on uh, on Blondo. When did you uh, go to St Andrews? June first. This year? Uh, this year, yeah. So okay. I'm, so tomorrow is my six-month anniversary. Okay. Well, I guess congratulations if we are celebrating six months anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you embark on this, um, as it were, uh, newly ordained uh, uh, role, just as many of us, and you included, are encountering the beginning of uh, a global pandemic. And I think there are two... Uh, interesting components of that specifically for you and we'll come to your role at uh, Nebraska Medicine in a second. I'm curious how the pandemic showed up for you personally but also for your role and your congregation uh, during that time when you were really just sort of starting out in many ways in in this um, you know faith-based role. Well, there's sort of a, a good news, bad news kinds of, kind of answer to that. Um, the good news was, as you said, it was about a year after I'd been ordained, um, may, maybe just nine months or so. Uh, but because I had decades of technology experience uh, behind me, um, I was sort of the right person in the right place. And so it was very easy for us uh, to, to, to make the transition to the kinds of um, the kinds of uh, worship experiences and technology um uh, infrastructure we needed to continue being uh, a, a congregation during those, especially the early months of the pandemic when everything was shut down. So, um, so it was that my my background was a surprise gift uh, at that time, um, and uh, not not just from the technology standpoint, but also um, from you know part of what I uh, did in my past lives was. Um, Involved not just the the nuts and bolts of technology, but documentation and user interface design and and inter- creating things that are um, that usable by humans, if you will. Um, and uh, so that also um, the, op- the the pandemic gave me uh, the opportunity to to bring all those skills to bear to create um, uh, worship materials and education materials, formation materials as we call them, uh, uh, to. To distribute to people in their homes and uh, and come up with really creative ways, um, very early on to use uh, Zoom and other things uh, to to interact with folks. So um, uh, it was both, you know, a, a, as you know, an awful time, but also, um, uh, you know, in some sense, an invigorating time because I got to bring all of my life skills to bear in a way that I might not have otherwise. I know that, like many 
faith institutions that St. Andrews is continuing with online services. Um, so, as you say, possibly insofar as we're reaching for these, a silver lining to emerge from the pandemic. What do you feel like has been perhaps big picture gained or lost as we have shifted the practices around worship and communing? I, I think we have all of us gained a deeper appreciation. We've been reminded, if you will, of the importance of community, the importance of being with each other when we had to go so long really without being with other people. Um, so I, I hope that stays with us all as a, you know, as a people, as, uh, as, as a global set of people. Um, it's, uh, it, it's so important to, um, to always have in front of us the fact that we are interdependent with each other uh, and that we need each other. So I think that's one of the, you know, one of the potentially positive things that will will be ongoing. One of the other positive things I think is that we've we've learned, um, not just churches but schools. You know, every institution has has learned um, how to be creative um, in getting the job done, whatever that whatever that job is. So, uh, you know, schools, um, you know, may not have snow days anymore. Uh, Churches may not have snow days anymore. People um, people can get education, even in the workplace, seminars and things, without having the expense and the time um, sometimes of of remote of, of traveling. Um, so I you know I think we are maybe the best way to say it is I think one of the unexpected outcomes of the pandemic is it pushed all of us forward. Pick a number, twenty five years um, in a, in the sort of interaction technology platform because there are. Uh, grandparents who would never have imagined themselves doing FaceTime or, or uh, Facebook Live or Zoom, who now um, every week visit with their children and grandchildren because they, they had to learn that during the pandemic. So um, it, it drove us apart, but also it gave us ways to, to become more connected uh, ongoing, I think. Um, from, a, from a downside, um, uh, of course, there's the, just the tragic and tremendous loss of life um, that's uh, worldwide, uh, that uh, that we will we will never get over. There's the loss of of um, you know if, uh, maybe a generation of school kids. Uh, not 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 a complete loss, but at least uh, a, a loss of two or three years of development that uh, that has has put them behind. Um, there's you know there, there's a lot of tragedy associated with the pandemic as well. That unfortunately takes me to a segue then to your role during the pandemic as a staff chaplain at Nebraska Medicine. And as you've been sharing, this was a tough time generally, but you were serving in a capacity within a hospital setting. Could you talk a little bit more about that and some of the experiences that you encountered? All of us, I think, have have stories of sadness and, and some of us have stories of horror during, uh, during especially the early days of the pandemic. Um, it's uh, there are so many images that I will never get out of my head from those days. Uh, obviously, the hospital was shut down except for staff. Uh, families uh, were not allowed to visit family members who were there even even as they died. So, so I have images like walking into one of the the waiting rooms, or you know the the uh, 
the guests, the visitor rooms, which uh, which was empty of, of visitors, of course, uh, but was now completely filled with masks and gowns and other protective equipment for all the nurses. Um, I will never get images out of my head of of the people I was with um, a, a, as they died, you know, uh, unable to breathe, um, unable to be with their loved ones during that that the last moments of their life. I'll never get images out of my mind of of um, the exhaustion of of the nurses, especially the the entire staff of the hospital, uh, but especially the nurses because they you know they bear so much of the brunt of the of the day to day care for patients, uh, tears, um, exhaustion, um, uh, things that will you know unfortunately stay with me forever. This may be a cliche, but it feels as if it is moments of trauma like that where faith is the necessary crutch that you can lean on but also it can on the uh, other hand be a time when you would have a crisis of faith because you're surrounded by this tragedy I wonder how that showed up for you personally given that you were fairly recently ordained that, that sort of wrestling with faith for good and bad and perhaps also for the people that you were ministering to as well you know how they were encountering the spiritual side when for some of them it was the end of their life well it's you know it's one of one of the great um, difficult uh, mysteries of uh, anyone who has a spiritual life uh, the question of why is why do bad things happen, especially why do bad things happen to good people? I mean, there's obviously the famous book with that title, but um, why is there tragedy? Why are there horrors um, around us? Um, and you know, there there is no there is no one plus one equals two answer to that. Um, and when when I was ministering to people um, in the hospital who are who are asking that question, as a, you know, as a as a person of the Christian faith, um, my answer to them was that I could I could give them my understanding, the way that I process that. Um, and what what I told them was there. It, it seems to me there must be something about something about the structure of love that means the possibility of pain and tragedy has to be there. So the analogy would be, you know, as, as a parent, uh, you, you can't keep your children in a box. You can't keep them safe. If you love them, you have to let them go do their own thing and take risks. And you have to let them drive the car alone for the first time. You have to let them, you know, go to college. So, so if, if you didn't love them enough, you could um, lock them up in their room and, and, and keep them safe. But... Uh, you know, but real love gives independence to the other person, if you will. So that's that's just an analogy. But I but I think there there must be something about the structure of love, something about the structure of the universe that that means that's that's the way it is. Um, and the reason, one of the reasons I'm a Christian, and one of the, one of the most important aspects of our Christian faith is that is that our God does not ignore that. Uh, you know, because um, we have a, a key belief that the creator of the universe, uh, you know, became a human being and uh, experienced everything that we 
that we are and everything that we do, including the pain of death and the pain of the loss of a friend. Uh, in the Christian faith, all of that pain is is sanctified and taken up into the love of God. Uh, you know, with with the ultimate promise that we 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 may not be able to see it now, but but ultimately it will be uh, it will be reconciled, it will be restored, um, and um, as Julian of Norwich said, all shall be well. Does it seem a little odd that you are entering the church in a professional capacity at a time when religious observance, church going, is in decline? One of the uh, one of the biggest debates, uh, one of the biggest sources of stress, one of the biggest uh, pain points for any organized religion. Uh, especially in the United States, and uh, really we're, I think, 25 or 30 years behind Europe, Western Europe, which has already sort of been where we are um, and, and, and gone further. But one of those key pain points is, um, is what are we going to do? What So many people are leaving the church. So many people um, are religious, uh, you know, are uh, spiritual but not religious. So many people are uh, becoming nuns. Um, and it's very hard because we we are so... We are so ingrained with the way of being the church has, uh, w which really came about, uh, you know, in the last hundred years or so, uh, especially here because we were a wealthy nation. The baby boom after World War II, the church was the center of activity. Uh, church was the center of social um, organization. Uh, that's just no longer the case, and it feels like uh, a great loss. It feels like we all are... Are, or should be mourning that um, the church as an institution um, has uh, has lost people's uh, confidence. And I think uh, you know you you could trace it back historically to the to the beginnings of the Western Church, you know, in the fourth century when when Christianity switched from becoming um, a, uh, um, a a group of people, who were sometimes persecuted, but uh, who who were not established, uh, to becoming established by Constantine as um, as the uh, third, eventually as and after him as the official religion of the Roman Empire. Um, some people would point to that as when the church started started uh, going south, because uh, it aligned itself with power. Uh, and uh, I, again, the message of the Christian Church is that might doesn't make right. Uh, our uh, our uh, our God came here not with as anyone with power as as someone with absolutely no power and no money and no riches, and uh, and uh, was was killed by the authorities, uh, and, and and you know died a horrible death as a, as a criminal. So I don't necessarily think it's hard, certainly, that the church as we know it will no longer exist. Uh, I think we can we can say that with confidence. Whatever happens over the next twenty five years, the church as we know it now uh, will no longer exist. The church as we knew it twenty five years ago doesn't exist now, uh, and it will continue to to, to change. And uh, it, it's so important not to conflate the church with uh, you know with the Holy Spirit and the work of God, because um, that uh, is effective regardless of what the church does. Uh, or doesn't do, and and I really think um, that the Christian Church is being called. Let me say that differently. The Christian Church is being forced 
to acknowledge the fact that for too long, too many centuries, um, it has uh, in many ways and in many times been a mouthpiece of power rather than a spokesperson for, uh, for, the, for the needy. I can't help but imagine that your many life experiences before you were recently ordained have influenced how you perceive and how you practice being a priest. But I don't know that. So I'm asking if that is the case and, and how perhaps your secular professional and personal lived experiences have shaped or informed how you approach the work of being a priest. Well, I'll give you more details in a minute, but to be honest, I think the uh, the most important aspect of uh, if for me personally uh, of coming to ordination um, at this point in my life is that I bring a combination of many decades of worldly experience and uh, you, eventually you re reach a place um, where you're just not as anxious about things. You're not striving. You're not trying to prove yourself. You're not trying to not trying to make a point. Richard Rohr has this great book called Falling Upward, where he talks about the, the subtitle is the second half of life. When if, if you're lucky, you realize you can just be and offer what you have and it will be enough rather than sort of climbing a ladder. Um, so I, I sort of uh, came to it at, at after that point in my life, um, not necessarily needing uh, to prove a point or to or to climb some kind of a ladder, but with lots and lots of years of experience uh, that that can be used to to um, to the benefit of many situations that I find at church, and as a new priest with all the enthusiasm of someone who's twenty five. So it's a combination of gray hair and uh, and enthusiasm, uh, which which is just sort of a, a lucky blessing that, that I bring. So I think that's that's the key thing is the combination of enthusiasm and experience. I'm not an old tired priest. Um, uh, I, I, I'm an old enthusiastic priest. <laughs> you mentioned uh, some specifics, and and one example you gave earlier was having. Uh, software skills, some mm -hmm. technology skills, and being able to bring that, mm -hmm. as it were, to the trauma of our pandemic circumstances. Um, what other uh, detailed examples might you share? Well, right now I am, you know, I, I know from my experience, uh, and, and you know, anyone who's who has or has had uh, little kids knows that it's, it's just exhausting. When you're a parent of young children, you don't have time you, for anything. Every day is a blur, and then your head hits the pillow, and, and you're exhausted. Uh, so I'm, I'm exploring ways, uh, trying to find ways uh, to be able to do, you know, Christian education for, for folks who, who can't come. Uh, right now I offer uh, education classes at 9 in the morning and at 7 at night, uh, which works for many people. But still, if you have kids, neither of those is going to work. So, um, so I'm just getting ready to, uh, to roll out a trial run of Google Classroom because it'll, it'll be asynchronous. Uh, it, it, it will let people sort of comment and join discussion threads, listen to things, watch things, um, read things at their own time, um, at their own pace, but still become part of, of uh, you know, of a, uh, of a community of discipleship. So, and I also, um, in all of my past lives, uh, have been uh, a musician. I'm a, I'm a singer, and I sing in a couple of groups here in Omaha. And I have always had music as one of my passions. And so, you know, in the Episcopal Church, our liturgy is sung, it can be sung. 
and and especially St. Andrews music is a very key part of the of the being of St. Andrews. Uh, we have uh, a, a very a very fantastic organist and choir uh, at, uh, at one of our services that's traditional, and we also have uh, the, some of the best jazz musicians in town at, at our jazz service. So. Uh, music is is a key part of the lifeblood of that church, um, and uh, that was something I could immediately plug into when I when I came there. When you left college, you recognized that, as you said, you were not ready, and you lacked the self awareness or enough self awareness to know that you weren't ready. And here we are, some decades later, and you are ready. How have you changed over your life? Definitely, uh, I have become a much less anxious person. Um, uh, you know, again, uh, years of uh, dealing with um, software blowups and years of dealing with uh, with people in hospital settings have, um, you know, softened the edges that I have and, and helped me. Um, Going back to one of the things we said earlier, help me know that uh, almost never, maybe never, uh, am I, are we in control. Um, and that um, however you plan, however, whatever it is you think is going to happen, it's it's not going to happen exactly as you planned, even in the best case of scenarios. Uh, and uh, the, imp the important thing is not did, did it come out exactly as you had thought, but are you moment by moment uh, kind of rolling rolling with the punches, going with the flow uh, and uh, and sort of opening yourself up to the possibilities of uh, of that instant in time? So certainly that's some that's a way that I have changed. I think it's it's easy for many of us who are in secular fields, living secular lives, or roles that don't require us to tend to other people to be a little self-interested perhaps, um, although I think the modern conversation has focused much more on our well-being. And I think that can encompass the spiritual as well as the um, other aspects of well-being. But your role is much more focused on other people now than perhaps it used to be. I'm, I'm wondering if you have had to sacrifice more of yourself, if you are less able to look after yourself now and what you do to make sure that you are looking after yourself, given that you do have to be much more attentive to the well-being of your congregation. That's uh, that problem that you talk about. Um, you, you know, you could call it clergy burnout, um, if it, or you know, it, uh, it goes by other names as well. Um, is a, is a very significant problem uh, for everyone in in any of the helping professions. Uh, compassion fatigue is another uh, phrase that's frequently used in the in the healthcare and medical circles. Uh, so it's something that's certainly real, um, and certainly uh, touches uh, you know anyone who is in some of the helping professions. Um, specifically for clergy, um, we we go through uh, you know training. Part of the training in seminary is to is to help develop spiritual disciplines and spiritual practices, self-care practices uh, that will carry you through those times. Um, and and um, it's it's important for a clergy person to have uh, ongoing, just sort of routine maintenance checkups, if you will, with counselors, spiritual directors, um, uh, you know, folks who will help you see the things that you're being blind to uh, at, at the time. 
and uh, and and um, also it's uh, it's important not to minimize the um, uh, the impact that being uh, a married priest has uh, because relying on your spouse and your family um, to uh, to uh, you know to sometimes beat you up the side of the head and say stop <laughs> you're you're uh, you know this is not sustainable so that that's also an, another important aspect at least in my case I think many of us are exploring our lives seeking to find some meaning within it some sense of purpose to our being here I'm going to assume and please correct me if I'm wrong I'm going to assume that you feel like you are at this point in your life living your purpose if that is accurate do you have any regret that you spent your life not doing this work or do you see your life in a different context? My really simplistic answer to that is everything that I have done has led me to this point. And if I had done something different, I would be in a different place. So um, I, I don't I, I don't spend much time playing the what if game. Do you have any advice or direction for those of us who are thinking, what is my purpose? How do I go about seeking that meaning that I think many of us are yearning for? One of, one of the most important things uh, that I would like people to know is that I firmly believe that happiness, purpose, fulfillment, all, all of those aspects of becoming a whole person are tied intrinsically to what we do for others. Uh, the relationships we forge with others, the care we give to others, uh, the, you know, the help that we give to others. Thinking that I need to be fulfilled in isolation in some sense, or you know, that I need to intrinsically be fulfilled by, by something that's inside of me, um, I, I think is a, you know, sometimes a fool's errand because, uh, because it's only as we're doing things with and for others uh, that we can find true fulfillment, our true purpose. Uh, yeah. My guest today has been Father Keith Winton, the rector at St. Andrew's Episcopal Church in Omaha. Father Keith, this has just been a delight. Thank you. Thanks. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening.